Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 115. On today's show, we talk about letter packets, diadems, and ancient Bogota. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to the show, everyone. And I'm joined, as always, by Rachel. Hello. Not April. April left the show a couple years ago. <laughs> not, not. I mean, April, she may come back as a, as a guest eventually, but April, you know, was getting her PhD and just had twins at the same time. That's a so, lot to deal with. That is a lot to deal with. Yeah. So Rachel has taken over co-hosting duties. Although I have to say it's weird that her name is April because when I worked customer service and I answered phones all day long, people always heard April instead of, instead of Rachel. Rachel, April. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Maybe something about the name. So mm. anyway, I'll basically answer to either one is what mm. happens when people start calling you the wrong name. So Good there you know. go. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got another news show for you today. And I want to start off by saying, please send us email. Right. I want to know what you like and I want to know what you don't like. And we've had emails from both sides of the camp in the last, I don't know, month or so. Sure. And I just want to know, do you like what we're doing? Do you not like what we're doing? If we get enough emails, then we'll do something different, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. We need the feedback because I'm sort of new to the show and we wanted to just try some new things. You know, we're throwing a lot of stuff out there. So tell us what you like. Yeah, we're trying this new timelines thing. So if you check out that episode, it was the the episode right before this. I li- I personally like these news segment episodes because it makes me think about some news stories in a little more in depth than just kind of a one off. You know, just reading the article. You know, we sit and talk about it. We we could cover twenty news stories in a single episode, but I thought yeah. one per segment so we can sit and talk about it and and see what's going on just from the. Without doing a deep dive, right? Yeah. Because that's the whole point. We want to look at it the same way anybody else who's not an archaeologist looks at it and do somewhat of an analysis based on the given information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that's what you're doing, right? If you're not an archaeologist and you're listening to this, you're reading these news stories just like we are, and we want to go from with that uh, with that critical eye. But if you got any other ideas for what you'd like to hear out of something called the archaeology show, <laughs> then uh, please let us know, because we might be too close to it. All right, so on to the first news story. It's called Unlocking History Through Automated Virtual Unfolding of Sealed Documents Imaged by X-Ray Microtomography. And this particular article is from Nature. We will link to it in the show notes. But I'll tell you what, this thing was all over the place as we're recording Mm -hmm. here in early to mid-March. This was all over the place for the last few weeks. Yeah, I think we got like an actual push notification to our phones from (laughs) CNN about this article. And I was kind of like, oh man, like I picked that one out to talk about this week and now CNN is telling everybody about it. So it's mainstream. Okay, whatever. Well, it was already on our list to talk about. So, (laughs) and it was partly on the list because 
I don't normally go down like Twitter rabbit holes. I just, yeah. I just don't do that. But this article got shared around when it first came out in the beginning of March. I think March 2nd was when it was published. And I just like started reading the article on Twitter and I couldn't stop. I was just absolutely fascinated by it. And it is a little bit different for us because it's not actually technically archaeology because these letters that they're doing this special process on are just it's just like a, a trunk full of letters that they found that were preserved, but not in the ground preserved like they just found them locked away or stored away somewhere and they have mm -hmm. this huge trunk full of letters 300 year old letters that they can do this process on so let's get that get that out of the way right away it's not technically archaeology but like the stuff they're doing is so cool and it's sort of archaeology adjacent so well, I mean, one of the things you have to look at is archaeology is all about using multiple sources to paint a picture of something in prehistory or history mm -hmm. or the past. And this is just one more thing that we can use because to, if we can read these letters, we can yeah. understand. Well, we can get two things out of these letters. First off, if we can read these letters, which I know in the article they mentioned that they were able to read one of them using this technique without even opening it. But if you can read them, you might gain some insight into people at a certain window and period of time. It might be somebody complaining about their husband or somebody <laughs> saying, why won't my kid go to college? I mean, I don't know. You know, they're letters, so it could be all kinds of things. Right, right. Yeah, but it is still cool to know that they had those still same concerns and, you know, whatever. True. And I guess that is totally right. Like, it still contributes to our view of the past, even though it's not something that was dug up from underneath the ground. So... Yeah, I mean, archaeology is not necessary. Some people probably disagree with me on this statement, but you don't necessarily have to use a shovel or a trowel to right, do archaeology. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I guess that is probably debatable. But anyway, yeah. this situation definitely was a lot of science, and they were doing that science on these letters that they already had mm -hmm. in a collection somewhere. Yeah. And the process they were using is called X ray microtomography, a scanning process, I guess where they could scan the letter and see the inside folds of it, basically, without having to unfold it. And the reason why that is so interesting and so important is because, first of all, the fragility of the letters and the paper itself, right? By opening it, you could destroy it. Mm -hmm. So scanning it and getting the information from it without unfolding it preserves it, number right. one. And number two... Not only are they interested in the contents of these letters and what the people were writing, but they are also interested in how they folded them. And I have to be honest, like that is what truly <laughs> grabbed my attention about this article is that they're, they they want to know how people folded these letters. And the reason is because this is 300 years ago. They didn't have commercial paper and commercial envelope production like you do these days. They didn't have envelopes at all. Mm -hmm. They would just fold these letters up in a certain way that would like make it a self-contained packet, a letter packet, they called it. And then they could just write the address on the outside. I'm not sure if they used stamps or something similar to that for right, sending it. Right. Probably not. I don't think stamps were really a thing yet. But yeah. anyway, yeah, they just would fold the letter up, pop their seal on the outside if they had one and then, you know, send it off. And I just think that is so cool. And it makes me want to write a letter and then fold it up like a letter packet and mail it today and see if it gets there without falling apart. I don't know. They didn't have our postal system back, you know, back in the day, <laughs> wherever this was, all over the place. Because our postal system is pretty much 
can accomplish anything you set their minds to, which includes destroying letters. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know they go like today's letters or today's mail goes through like these big, like yeah. flat, like processor things. And that's how they can scan like every single piece mm. of mail that comes through. So I'm not sure that, that this technique would make it through, but it sure would be interesting to try. And I definitely have some plans on getting some paper and at least trying to like fold the, the techniques because they describe these folding techniques in depth in this article. It's really cool. They've got like diagrams where you can follow the actual folding technique to get it into these perfect little packets. Wasn't it some of them? It wasn't that I read about, it wasn't just the folding because I kept thinking, well, if you're careful enough, couldn't you just unfold this? But some of them had like a slit and an, yeah. and an extra piece of paper in there that would indicate that it was actually unfolded. Right. But then, you know, my other question was like, you were still talking about paper here though, right? Like, couldn't you just replace that if you knew what you're doing? If you were like, really wanted to know what was inside this letter, could you open it? You'll break the the internal piece the that you didn't know was there. Yeah. And you could just refold it and put that piece back. Like, I'm not sure how secure this actually was. It's still pretty cool. Um, I, so I don't know a lot about this except for what I read in this article, yeah. but it sounds like there would be a seal involved that would mm-hmm. have to also be broken and you couldn't as easily put that seal back in place. Oh, yeah. So that might be the thing that is making well, those, it un, unbreakable. Yeah, the wax seals were hard to get off and replace because yeah. if you didn't have the stamp, yeah. you couldn't get the wax back on just the right way. Yeah, but it has to do with like the folding too, like the piece of paper. Yeah. So they would they would fold it up into the like rectangle that they wanted. I'm I'm looking at diagrams to get this, so ho- I don't know if I'm <laughs> getting it exactly right. I haven't tried it yet. But then, like you said, they would cut a slit in it that looked like it was about like maybe a centimeter long. Mm-hmm. And then they would take a, a like skinnier piece of paper and sort of fold it to look like an airplane almost. Mm. Um, and then put the point through that slit that they had made in the letter and like fold it down. And then there's the other flap part is like folded as well. And it all just gets like folded in together. And then it becomes this thing where if you, you break into any part of it, then it's broken and you can tell. So yeah, that was the sort of security aspect of it. Nice. Um, The other thing with these, these, the folding aspect of this is that there were tons and tons of different ways of folding letters too. And it wasn't all for security. Like the ones with the little extra piece of paper through for security, not everybody did that because no, I mean, some people didn't care if you somebody broke in and read a letter to their mother about how their kids were brats or something like that, you know? Like, yeah, they just folded them because envelopes hadn't been invented. Exactly. They had to like protect it so that the writing wouldn't be obscured somehow. or whatever and that you could read the, the address on the outside. So, and those in that case, it was just like a series of folds that would end up with a rectangle. And all of the rectangles seem to be approximately the same size, but there mm-hmm. are some radically different folding techniques that would that would get you there. And you don't know what those folding techniques are just looking at the outside of the packet until you open it, of course. And then we get into the problem of, well, if you open a 300-year-old letter, you could be ruining it. Mm-hmm. So this microtomography scanning process, the x-ray microtomography scanning process is what allows you to see the folds in the paper and then recreate them. Yeah. So part of what these researchers did is they they scanned a bunch of letters and they saw all the different folding techniques. They were able to standardize the 
nomenclature for folding techniques, basically, mm-hmm. so that in the future, researchers can say, oh, this is this type of folding. This is this type of folding. This is this type of folding. And they can do that as they go on and x-ray scan more of the letters because they haven't done all of them. There's still more letters to be opened. Yeah, because there's so many factors that would go into how somebody would fold something. I wonder, like the size of the paper, first off, would Mm -hmm. probably determine that. Also, are you trying to get to a certain end result size? It sounds like they probably were because, you know, I mean, if you had your, if you were a, you know, a wealthy landowner or something, you probably had somebody that would deliver your, you know, deliver your letters to wherever they need to go or something like that. So it really probably didn't matter, but they still had to fit into some kind of like satchel or pouch or some sort of carrying thing. And so they probably ended up without even realizing it coming down to some sort of custom not a custom but standard size mm-hmm. but then other factors would be like the the weight of the paper what kind of paper was it was right. it conducive to multiple folds could you only fold it a few times because it was too thick and i don't know maybe just maybe fancier paper was a little more brittle or something or you mm-hmm. know whatever the case may be and or how then, many pages because uh, often well, yeah. these pages are long and it's a bunch of them stacked yeah. together too so yeah i'm guessing all of that would would affect what type of folding technique they were using right and how big that final size would end up being so yeah and were there certain styles preferred by different regions or countries or Mm. something, I wonder? That's an interesting question. And I wonder if this collection that they have will be able to answer that because Mm -hmm. it's a a postmaster's trunk preserving 300-year-old undelivered post. It's called the Brienne Collection. And it's about 3,000 letters that some were open and some were unopened by the time they got to researchers. And presumably they're from all over Europe, so they might be able to like categorize these different techniques by region maybe and, and draw some results or some so conclusions wait a minute. undelivered 300 of them <laughs> yeah. so 300 years ago <laughs> the european post office was messing it up i mean you know post office delivery has wow never been great <laughs> how is that so hard is what i want to know is it just the pure volume know. of mail Honestly, that was one of the questions I was left with from this story, because I want to know how this collection of unopened, undelivered (laughs) letters ended up sitting in a trunk somewhere for researchers to find. Like, what were the circumstances behind that? Did some postmaster just, like, forget about it? Yeah, and who's Brienne? (laughs) So. No idea. But, yeah, it's... I am. I have more questions about the collection. I'm very interested in trying out the folding technique on the letters. I think that that is so cool, and I wish it was something that we could revive in modern times. Might take a little bit of effort and some trial and error to figure out what you can send through the mail and have it arrive without falling apart. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, envelopes these days aren't even that sturdy. They're just mm-hmm. like thin pieces of paper, so it could be possible. Well, I did read that this trunk of letters was actually discovered in a museum uh, in The Hague. Oh. Yeah. So a place like that, it probably had this trunk was probably sent to The Hague with a bunch of other stuff when somebody died and they they had a will or something that said, here, send all my stuff to the museum. Mm-hmm. And it more likely has just been collecting dust. And Yeah, but sure. But like the, 
the postman who didn't deliver those letters oh, well. didn't like die and say, send it to the egg. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's like, going on there. Like what? Ha- that's those are the circumstances that I'm I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah. How did they end up in this trunk? Yeah. And then how did that trunk end up? Yeah. Going wherever it went. Yeah. Like 50 know? years later, 100 years later, I could totally see that like sure. becoming something that would be preserved. But I mean, retirement wasn't really a thing. I'm willing to bet this postmaster just died. Yeah. And, and you know, was responsible for this and and that it just, and it just didn't happen just didn't happen yeah yeah, yeah. and then knew, nobody knew it was in the trunk like maybe their family who knew what was going on and it was just put aside and passed down and moved around and, and eventually sent off to a museum so mm-hmm. probably just the old trunk was sent to a museum yeah you know? yeah probably but why would you open an old trunk i don't know it's don't all crazy know. yep don't know those circumstances yeah but, right. but anyway back to the letters in addition to the folding stuff which has clearly captured my imagination. But we should also mention that they are going to be able to read these letters without unfolding them. And they, I think they've kind of sorted through the contents of this chunk and they don't anticipate any of the letters being like super important or changing history or anything. It looks like it was really just like letters from one regular person to another regular person. So, you know, the secrets, secrets of Europe at the time are not going to be revealed to us. We're still not going to know what happened to the two princes in the tower. Like that's still (laughs) not going to be revealed by the (laughs) the letters in this trunk. Um, Maybe one of them wrote one of the letters. No. And I think I'm like way off on my years too. I'm pretty sure that happened like (laughs) like 200 years before this trunk. (laughs) So whatever. Anyway, but it is interesting to get a little bit of a glimpse into everyday life by reading these letters. The first one that they were able to read, I think is all in French and it's the only one that they've read so far, but they do have plans to to virtually read more of them and just see what everyday life was like, you know, or at least how they portrayed it. I mean, aren't letters like the social media of 300 years ago? So I'm pretty sure like everybody's going to be sending these like rosy, you know, perfect stories about their life to their family members and friends. Right. 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 <laughs> All right. Well. We have just received the mail, and there's a letter in it that says we have to talk about a 4,000-year-old Spanish princess. <laughs> All right, so let's take a break and talk about that on the other side. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to segment two of episode 115 of The Archaeology Show. In this segment, we are switching gears and we are going to talk about some grave goods that have been found in a Bronze Age Spanish grave. And by Spanish, I mean current Spain. This site is located in southeastern Spain. It's called La Almoloya and it radiocarbon dates to about 1700 BCE. But the people who occupied the site were part of a culture known as the Argaric, and it's named after the archaeological site of El Argar, which is about 50 miles away from there. So that's sort of your Mm. place and time context for the site. And the reason that it is making the news right now is because they discovered a burial. Archaeologists discovered a burial of a man and a woman, and it's about 4,000 years old, and the woman she just has all kinds of very valuable treasure like buried with her. She's got the silver diadem on her skull, on her head and like jewelry and stuff. And she just clearly has like very valuable items were buried with her. And then the man that is buried in the same burial pit with her has not nearly as, as interesting grave goods. He just, he looks like a soldier. He's got some like scars and stuff on his skull, but It's just very interesting that the woman has so many more valuable grave goods, whereas the man with her does not. Mm -hmm. And what is a diadem? Oh, a diadem, for those who haven't watched all the Harry Potter movies many, many times. (laughs) That's right. I forgot that was was in there. Like Rowena Ravenclaw's diadem is one of the... um, Horcrux. It's one of the Horcruxes. Anyway, if that didn't jog your memory, it's like a kind of like this circlet thing that you would wear around your head. And there's usually some kind of ornament that comes down across the forehead. And mm-hmm. in the case of this one, it's got this like round part that comes down over the forehead and the nose. Yeah. The conversation around this burial site and others that have been like it from the same time in the same area is that because the women are buried with these super valuable and really beautiful and well-constructed and nice grave goods, the speculation is that maybe women were the leaders of this society. And that's the reason why they were buried in that manner. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's true or not, because I mean... What if that was just the style for women at the time was just to have all this glittery, fancy stuff? But well, did you read in here whether or not the because uh, of the man and the woman were buried together? Did one of them die and the other one was killed to be buried with him? Like, was the man killed? If that's the it, implication here, it looks like he was buried first and then she was added to the same tomb later on, but not uh, not yeah. very long after. Yeah. You know, they they see two different burial time frames but but not huge amounts of time separate hmm. them so interesting yeah i was reading here in the article they say diadems and crowns made of precious metals are called emblematic objects uh, in history but unlike what they say they say they mentioned like flags and heraldry stuff like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. unlike that diadems are designed to be worn by specific individual people 
because uh, it's like designed around your face and head. Oh, it's like a very yeah. specific size and shape and stuff, I'm guessing. Right, right. Yeah, okay. So having that object like this that is designed for a specific person, essentially, makes it a, a new term I hadn't really heard before called an emblematic subject. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's just kind of cool archaeology terms there. Uh, that they've used. You don't really see a lot of that stuff when we're talking about archaeology in like the North America. Yeah. Uh, it's just at least not the stuff that we've dealt with personally. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of a kind of a neat concept. It also said that metal um, in this article that we're linked to metal diadems appear in the archaeological record of the Iberian Peninsula during what they call the late Chalcolithic and the early Bronze Age, which is mid to late third uh, millennium uh, BC. Mm. So. A little bit before this one was found, Mm -hmm. which means, I mean, not a little bit, like a thousand years before this one was found. Yeah. So what that typically means is, you know, this was, again, commonplace, as we always mention. A thousand years is a long time. Yeah. And if these things have been found in that way and they've been finding them for a thousand years, like your comment of, you know, women being the ruling class in that area, that would make sense because I don't think the men were wearing diadems there it's more no of a women, that was woman thing right like definitely a female feature? yeah it seemed like it was definitely a female thing yeah but the man who was buried with this particular woman he did have like gold mm. ear what, what do you call when it's like a ear stretcher thing where it's like plugs yeah kind of like that yeah like earplugs yeah sort of so he had those which were probably pretty valuable so yeah. it's not like he was buried with nothing and she had everything. He wasn't so. a slave. No. It doesn't he was still a companion, but maybe not the ruling companion. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, not. Of the two. Yeah. Huh. Oh, anyway, crazy. it's just such a big statement to say that because the this female skeleton had so much jewelry, therefore she was the ruler. And I, I think we're getting just a very like surface view mm-hmm. of all the research and the excavation from these articles that we've found. So maybe there's more there. And that might be a media problem and a reporting problem because they're not giving the best in-depth like review of this stuff. Well, I mean, you got to go to history, right? Because it's been... It's been documented in in a number of societies around the planet that the more richly adorned you are and appointed, the more chances, the higher chances that you're the ruler. Yeah. You're the person that was important. Although that kind of stuff swings back around because anyone that looks at what will be my mom's grave when she dies later (laughs) on, that woman's always got like 48 rings on and necklaces. So I assume she'll be buried with that stuff. And anybody finds her 500 years from now, they'd be like, oh, she was the supreme ruler. Mm, Nope. (laughs) (laughs) If any of her, like, you know, jewelry stands the test of time, that's the other question right there. Yeah, it's quality, too. Yeah. Which I think in this case is something that is making them think that she had some sort of political powers because of the quality of the items that were buried with her. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have, like, costume jewelry back then. If you had silver, it was silver. Yeah. You know, they yep. didn't they didn't paint over, you know, iron. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and this, the one other thing I did read, too, is that should be considered when thinking about who had the power in this culture is that the bone and skeleton evidence that they have from lots of burials from this time period in, in this area is that girls and women ate just as much meat as men and were mm-hmm. had just as nutritious of a diet as men did. Yeah. Which I guess is not always the case in a society that doesn't value the women as much as they value the men. 
Yeah, another thing that says that the the man and the woman were definitely contemporaneous, not just buried in the same spot, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool. You take all your different pieces of information, is that they did a DNA analysis and there were 1.24 million uh, ancestry informative single nucleotide polymorphisms, which basically all that means is they were biologically unrelated, uh, <laughs> but they had a shared offspring. And I was reading that going, well, how do they know these two yeah. people by looking at their DNA? But there was a female infant buried under a nearby building that they were both related to. Oh, really? So it was their child, a first degree oh, relationship, it says. okay. Biologically, which is pretty cool. That is really neat. Yeah. Yeah. I did read that this culture tended to bury their dead underneath structures and buildings that mm-hmm. are I'm not sure if those buildings have meaning to the people being buried there or if it's more of a like religious or you know spiritual ritual whatever yeah. center but they're definitely always buried under a building of some sort yeah this woman too uh, an osteological analysis said that she had a bunch of congenital anomalies it says here um, affecting her including the absence of the 12th rib only six cervical vertebrae a lumbosacral transitional vertebrae. I don't even know if that's bad or good. A fusion <laughs> defect of the fourth and fifth sacral vertebrae. Partial ossification of the interosseous radio ulnar membrane. Oh, wow. Shortening and marked bending of the left ulna and abnormal shortening of the left thumb. What the heck? Wow. She had all kinds of things going on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, man, it's just so many things. You got to read this article. Check out the show notes and, and look at the article for the second article here uh, that we're linking to. It's just really interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I must have skimmed over that part. I did see that the the male had a bunch of injuries to his skull and his face, which had fully healed before he was buried. So that's why there was some speculation that he was a soldier of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Said he had a traumatic injury to the left squamous portion of the uh, frontal bone, which ah. had fully healed long before his death. It says here, but I can't imagine getting hit in the skull with something enough to have it shown later didn't have long-lasting effects. Well, in frontal, like your frontal bone. Yeah, he got is, hit in the face. Yeah, like, yep. Yeah, I mean that's the kind of thing where if you are in combat or something. I mean, these people lived in you know stone and really thick wood dwellings and stuff like that he might have just really hit his head hard you know? <laughs> just like running into the building bam hit your head but more than likely it was an overhand blow with a club type of thing i mean if it were you in that grave i would 100 percent believe that yeah. you have some trouble with your you know edges i've got some <laughs> rv slide shape injuries on my face <laughs> yeah you do <laughs> if you want to see those check out our youtube channel oh my god yeah. um, anyway no anyway yeah that Definitely, it was a very, very rich grave. That is for sure. So these people, whoever they were, they had a lot of money, and they were mm-hmm. important to to the society that they were that they lived in. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting too that the actual picture of the diadem, silver diadem, it's not really that ornate. It's uh, it's just it's silver, and like Rachel said, there's a piece that comes down over the the bridge of the nose, like a circle, right? Yeah. Like it, yeah, yeah. Like it covers the bridge of the nose, and then there was like a circle over the nose or something. I don't really know yeah. how far that came down because it was around the, the forehead, forehead, the top part was, but yeah. it doesn't look like, and I can't see anything in the reading material here that it had like jewels or anything on it or spaces for jewels that may not be there anymore. But it's uh, it's definitely not like crazy ornate, but would have been uh, would have been 
you know, very obvious that mm-hmm. you're, you're wearing this kind of thing, right? And probably really shiny back in the day. Yeah, I think the simplicity shouldn't make yeah. you think that it's less special. It, it's you know? everyday crown. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's diadem, not crown. Oh, sorry. Got it. <laughs> All right. Well, check out this article in the show notes. Uh, it's pretty cool. Lots of really good information. And it's from Cambridge.org, one of the ones we're going to listen to. Us. We got a few here, but this one from Cambridge.org is like the paper. Yeah, it's, it's like completely the, open. it's an open access. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely check it out if you want to read a scholarly academic article <laughs> and you don't necessarily get uh, access to these. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's move on. And we're going to talk about... Aerial photographs and Bogota. I thought almost we were going to have an Architect podcast crossover and have to start the drone drinking game up, but it's not drones. It's just <laughs> nope, old not aerial drones. photographs. <laughs> so if you don't know what I'm talking about, check out the Archaeotech podcast at arcpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech. And also, while you're there, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members and consider <laughs> becoming a member today. Plug, 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 plug. Hey, got to keep it rolling. All right, back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show in the final segment of episode 115. And we are moving to the other side of the planet to talk about aerial photographs in Bogota, Colombia. So what about aerial photographs? First off, I did mention the Architect podcast in the last segment, and that really is a prompt from this article because we could talk about this article on that show. And this yeah. is the kind of things that we would talk about. I might bring it up. I'm actually recording another episode of that here in a little bit. So I might bring it up because there have been a lot of people using old aerial photographs of places mm-hmm. and doing photogrammetric analysis. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's taking a whole bunch of photographs and stitching them together, coming up with the common points. Usually you need about uh, anywhere from 40 to 60 or 80% mm. overlap on the photographs. And old aerial photographs where they basically had a huge camera attached to an airplane and they just went snap, 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 snap. They mm-hmm. by default have a massive amount of overlap. Now, in order to get depth on a photogrammetric 
image, you usually need an offset photo as well. So you need the straight down photos that are overlapped and usually photos at like a 30 or 45 degree oh, angle sure. yeah. in order to just kind of start getting that depth in there. But even if you don't have that, you could infer that from the old photographs and you can get a pretty good almost 3D representation of landscapes from the 30s. Okay. Which is really cool. That is super interesting because when I was reading this article... I got that the researchers were using aerial photographs from the 30s, 40s, 50s to look at basically the ancient city that occupied the space of Bogota, the current city of Bogota, Colombia, is on. But I didn't quite understand exactly how, except if maybe they were seeing like the remains of ruins through these aerial photographs. Because, so to kind of go to the beginning here... Europeans arrived in Bogota in 1537 and there was a large group of people living there. They had a really extensive and complex hydraulic system for their agriculture production. And when the Europeans arrived, I don't think they really understood what was going on. They hadn't seen that kind of farming and agriculture before. And the system basically broke down at that point. Thanks, Europeans. (laughs) (laughs) So then it was out of use for, well, forever, and it has fallen into ruins. And okay, great. That's fine. Like, there's plenty of stuff out there that archaeologists can go excavate and find those ruins. However, Bogota experienced a giant population growth in the 1950s and, and on. It went from, like, a couple hundred thousand people to, like, a couple million people. So... Mm -hmm. This explosive growth meant that the city started sprawling. They needed space for all these people to live. And I don't think that they had the regulations and rules in place, especially not back in the 50s and 60s when it first started. But they didn't have the regulations and rules in place to preserve archaeological sites. So most of this stuff, any any remains that were there were just, you know, destroyed in in the face of all this urban growth and urban sprawl. Yeah. So. To talk about the, I guess, wetlands and system that they had there, the soil here is very poorly drained. Yeah. It's, um, it's like a really thick clay, and when it rains, the stuff just sits right on top. Yep. And it even says here, like today, I mean, obviously, it was raining a lot 500 years ago. It's still raining a lot. So when that happens, they get a ton of flooding. Yeah. Uh, and flooding that just like sounds like it just goes right down the streets because yep. it's all concrete and, and what's not concrete is hard clay. Yeah, like it's still right. not draining. <laughs> right, exactly. Yep. So the people 500 years ago and clearly well before this, but up to, you know, when, when European contact happened, they use that to their advantage. They're like, well, we live here, so let's do something about it. And they, you know, lived on uh, higher ground areas and they basically like almost like walled off these areas. And when it flooded, they would use that as a water source to attract animals, which yeah. they could kill. Yeah. And they could also use it for their crops and to grow things. Yeah. So this is what I thought was so incredibly genius about this. Yeah, they cool. they were using the water that they were trapped. They would build channels and different platforms and stuff for trapping the water. And and the the platforms, they would use those platforms for growing the crops like potatoes and things like that that were their staple crops in that area. And at the same time, they're attracting deer and birds and even fish and stuff into this this water-filled and plant-filled Aquarian kind of environment and then they had a meat source I think it's just so freaking genius the way they worked with this really unforgiving environment Mm -hmm. to make it work for them it's just amazing if Europeans had slowed down for a minute and watched what they were doing they might have 
had a little bit of a better time. Yeah. Well, like the Europeans weren't really interested in living somewhere and, you know, living harmoniously. Oh. They were looking for gold. They were. That's true. Yeah, they, they were, were looking, looking for, for minerals. Gold. Yeah. And they likely had never seen any kind of thing like this because that sort of farming just doesn't exist in Europe. It doesn't need to. It's it's just not built on that kind of a yeah. thing. Maybe yeah. if they'd been to, you know, Africa or something and seen similar stuff going on in Egypt. Right. But yeah, I mean, most of them probably hadn't. But yeah. Yeah, anyway, so the aerial photographs, when you make a model using those old aerial photographs, even if you don't make a model, if you know what you're looking for, you can see, even if the city has expanded by many, many hundreds of percentages over the past you know, 80 years, you can still see evidence of the older agricultural stuff. Because while it says Europeans, you know, probably started destroying this stuff and taking them down you can't destroy thousands of years of cultural knowledge and like why would they take the time to like destroy rock walls or whatever it was that they constructed the channels and things out of they probably destroyed a few things in order to bring their own stuff in and do whatever they wanted to do but the the general like archaeological history and what was there is probably evidence of that for many hundreds of years later and that's Mm -hmm. why they're taking these older photographs from the 20th century to look at something from the you know 15th and 16th centuries because the archaeological evidence was still there at the beginning of the last century. Mm -hmm. So they're able to see that stuff through those old aerial photographs and then make inferences of, you know, what it looked like. It's basically doing archaeology, but with just photographs. Yeah. Yeah, because we can't see them today. It's all either been ruined or buried by other stuff. Yeah. Such an interesting approach, though, to use the photos to the old photos to go back in time as far as you can anyway, and then, mm-hmm. and find these things. And Lorena Rodriguez Gallo is the lead researcher in this particular project. And she was saying that it kind of looks like it was sort of a chessboard style arrangement of mm. the, the platforms that they called Kemayones and then the system of channels. But it looks like things were arranged roughly chessboard Ish. And that kind of makes sense because the platforms is where they were growing things and then they'd have the, the channels like directing the water in between and around. And it wasn't all the time. It was just when the flooding happened and they would use these platforms for growing things. And then, yeah, sort of that whole eco mm-hmm. bio biological ecosystem kind of took off from there. Yeah. And a uh, little bit of history around the people who, you know, were disrupted by the Europeans coming in. They were called, and I'll probably pronounce this wrong, it's M-U-I-S-C-A, but Muisca is how I see it. That's how I would say it, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm not really sure, but it does say, and this always really gets me. So we're talking about northern South America, mm-hmm. and it says the first humans to arrive in the Bogota region did so around 12,000 years ago. Well, when we're having conversations here about people arriving in the Americas, it's always like twelve to 14,000 years ago. So yeah. it seems like when people came across, however they came across, we, we can talk about that in a different episode. But when they came over here, they just spread out across two continents over a pretty short period of time, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. Like what caused them, what caused them to just keep on going and drop people off as they went? Right. <laughs> and just like this train marched all the way down to Patagonia, yeah. leaving people along the way. Well, I mean, maybe it was multiple points of entry. You don't know. Well, and there is, <laughs> therein lies the oh, issue there. is that the thing that you were hinting at? <laughs> well, and, and why this time frame too, though? Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, there's, there are some arguments. I don't want to get too far into this because this isn't the show for it, but... 
We did interview somebody on this show like three or four years ago who was a lead researcher for a supposed Mastodon kill site that was found in San Diego back in the 90s. And the reanalysis of some of these artifacts was done decade, like a couple decades later, just mm-hmm. a, you know, a few years ago. And this is highly contested, but he's saying that these are tools that were created and used by people 125,000 years ago. Now, I'm not going to comment really on whether or not that's real or not. Yeah. But the other big question that people have asked through time are, what's so special about people 12 to 14,000 years ago versus people 30 or 40,000 years ago or people 100 to 120,000 years ago? What technologically is different about those people? Yeah. And the answer is not a whole lot. Yeah. So why couldn't people have come here during other interglacial periods using other methods to just come to these continents and maybe they just didn't proliferate the way we have people here now mm-hmm. and maybe they died out and there were multiple waves of migration to this half of the world and maybe the only reason we know about this one is because coincidentally Europe and Asia and some other places you know that we're very familiar with started getting really sophisticated and then exploring the entire planet and then eventually yeah. we have us here so yeah. It's interesting to think what caused people to come here and, and, and what we know about that. But anyway, back to Bogota. <laughs> says they showed up around 12,000 years ago, which is from the archaeological evidence. They mm-hmm. had um, eventually domesticated animals such as guinea pigs. They constructed these uh, hydraulic engineering projects, and uh, which those types of projects allowed people to settle here permanently around 3,000 years ago because they wouldn't have been able to with all the flooding. Right. It so, just wouldn't have been... The environment was too harsh before they were able to like corral the water and use right. it for their purposes. So again, we come back to oh, these prehistoric people. How did they function when you know they didn't have Netflix? But <laughs> three thousand years ago, while you know we weren't doing anything because we weren't alive yet, you know, three thousand years ago, these guys are like, hey, let's just build up a whole bunch of dams and control this water and just live our lives. Yeah, no big deal. It's kind of amazing that yeah. that they were able to just. Like intuitively, like look at the water and the way it moved and just figure out how to use it for their purposes. It's Yeah, I'd like to see genius. versions versions like one through ninety nine of this little process. Oh true. Like a lot of people drown. <laughs> yeah. Well maybe not drown. <laughs> That's a, maybe a little dramatic, but well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I see what you're saying. Like there's probably a lot of failed attempts before they were able to get these channels and the camelonis yeah. to work the way that would help sustain their society. It's like the monsoon season comes around on version three and everybody <laughs> floods out and they're like, damn it, John, you said <laughs> it wasn't going to happen again. Right, right. <laughs> because their name was John. Yes. All right. For sure. I think the name was Chris. Yeah. Well, you never know. <laughs> All right. Well, that is really cool. Take a look at the article that we have linked in the show notes. Again, if you come across anything in your reading of the news, send it over to us. Chris yeah. at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You can comment on one of our Instagram posts that we're putting up. If you don't follow us on Instagram, check out ArcPodNet on Instagram. Rachel has actually been running a lot of our social media over there lately, and we're putting up really cool like audiograms that give you a little sneak peek of what's going on and, and mm-hmm. fun images attached to the show. So check that out. Yep, for sure. And you can also find those on Twitter and on our Facebook page. Uh, everything is at ArcPodNet, so go check that out. Again, like I mentioned at the end of segment two, if you want to help us out and keep all this rolling because we're all doing this basically on a shoestring here keeping you know 13 to 20 episodes a month coming out across the entire network 
really just when we can. You know, we're, we're finding holes in our schedules, and we're doing this, and we're keeping this going. We have a bunch of volunteers that are doing it. So if you want to help out with this effort, join us at arcpodnet.com forward slash members. It's only seven ninety nine a month. You get some extras. You can do it for the year if you want. Save yourself 30% on that. I can't remember what seven ninety nine times 12 <laughs> minus 30% is. I don't know. Whatever that is, do that yeah. math. But uh, it's pretty cool, and it really helps us out. So join our other members, and help preserve all this knowledge that we're we're collecting with the archaeology podcast network so that's it thanks a lot and we will see you next time bye-bye thanks for listening to the archaeology show feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com find us on facebook instagram and twitter at arcpodnet you can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh.